morning and welcome to another episode of In The Know, On The Go. Our aim is to get you across the things that matter in a way that's short, sharp and, well, just bloody easy to understand. I'm recording this episode on Wadarung country from my mobile studio because the leaf blower is going outside. <laughs> and I'd like to acknowledge the original storytellers, our First Nations people, and extend those respects to any land where you're listening to the podcast. Today, I've got Fiona Simpson. She's a family farmer from the Liverpool Plains of New South Wales an extraordinary rural woman who we'll chat to at some stage later in the year. But today, I'm keen to chat to you, Fiona, with your hat on of the President of the National Farmers Federation. You've recently got back from a trip across Europe and the UK, meeting with various business leaders and governments about Aussie Ag. But first, I just want to ask, how are you? <laughs> well, um, we're, we're, it sounds like such a big world tour when you say that sort of trip. <laughs> Um, just slightly recovered from the jet lag now, Ollie. Uh, five, you know, five days on the ground, two days in the UK, three days in Berlin. I think nearly as long in the air, getting um, on and off planes, getting me to all those different places. So really nice now to be coming to you live from my farm. I, as you say, on the Liverpool Plains, that I haven't got a leaf blower in the background. You've probably got birds and crickets and things like that. Um, and lovely Gomoroi country here too, where we've worked so well um, as landholders and custodians with our traditional owners um, in some of the battles that we have here in the Liverpool Plains around the sustainability of our natural resources and agricultural resources. So um, very good for the soul to be here on the farm. And it's become quite a prominent location for you. We've seen many a live cross from that deck or the backyard. Um, yeah, my veranda has become famous. Um, yesterday, uh, somebody said that they thought it should be mandatory that everybody have a veranda like mine. And um, it is a great spot to be doing interviews from, although occasionally you do hear a little bit of um, superfluous family or farm noise. Uh, my grandchildren arrived yesterday while I was in the middle of a, a round table with the minister and um, the odd tractor um, or something else goes past or sometimes a husband comes in demanding something. So it's a little bit as we play it, but um, it's, it's, a, it's quite a famous brand now. It's been on, been on TV. It's been everywhere. Well, that's what we love about it, Fiona. And so I'm keen to understand the trip over to the UK. Can you tell me a little bit about what the purpose of it was? Yeah, look, I was really pleased to be invited by the minister to accompany him on behalf of the industry. So NFF, as you know, Ollie, um, then it's the whole broad spectrum of agriculture um, across Australia. So we're talking about every commodity, every state. Uh, 37 members, I think, of NFF these days to all our organisation representing farmers. So when you want to take the big, broad Team Australia, um, Team Australian Agriculture, you take um, someone from NFF. And so we were pleased to be asked to accompany the Minister on a very whirlwind um, trip to shore up um, and sort of push along the final stages of the UK FTA um, after, you know, we've also had people like um, Don Farrell going, the Prime Minister going. Um, um, we were just hearing that there were a few little snags with some of the, the political movements in the UK recently. So we, uh, the Minister thought it was important that we go along, present a united front, talk to the farmers, talk to the decision makers in the UK. So we spent 48 hours there and then uh, headed to Berlin for the Global Forum for Food and Agriculture, which is something that is held in Berlin every year. It's been in hiatus for a couple of years over COVID, but every ag minister, I think nearly you know, many, many ag ministers from across the world attended, and it's held in conjunction with the Big Green Week in Berlin as well, uh, which is where a lot of farmers attend. So an opportunity for me to not only meet some of the decision makers in the EU, 
um, but also some of the farming group representatives and you know, ahead of the next round of negotiations for the, U- the EU FTA, which are in Canberra next week, um, then uh, in actual fact, you know, it's important to keep pushing that agreement along as well. So on the Australia and UK free trade agreement, I think it's really cool that agriculture is front and centre and really having a seat at the table. So what's actually left to get this over the line? So right now we are literally um, sprinting now, I'm pleased to say, in the last week since we've been back towards the finishing line. So you, um, if free trade agreements take a long time to negotiate because, uh, of course, they are about agricultural goods, but they're also about a lot of other things as well. So consumer goods, um, the way we move um, you know, services, the provision of services, um, people, the way we do business together, uh, the way we work together. A lot of those things are negotiated in free trade agreements. Um, and so they take years, literally, to 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 negotiate. The UK one's been relatively quick, just a couple of years. Um, and so, um, and with all the changes there in the UK, so our government had ratified it, ticked all the boxes, had gone through everything in our parliament. It had gone back to the UK to just get their final tick-offs. Um, and it just seemed to be getting a little bit stalled in the House of Lords. And so we actually um, met with, you know, when we've been talking to the NFU, the National Farmers Union, for some time, the minister was able to meet with his colleagues and his peers uh, across government to just find out whether there were any hurdles there. And then he and I and Department Secretary Andrew Metcalf um, all then met with the House of Lords committee that was reviewing um, just the bill and doing that final step before it went back to Parliament again for its third reading speech. And there were some concerns that they were going to be making some amendments. Um, you know, there's been noise about the different production systems we have, the different you know animal welfare systems, um, the chemical usage on farms, those sorts of things um, that have been raised. And also the UK farmers are, are not used to negotiating free trade agreements. This is their first one for a very long time. While they're in the EU, they didn't have to do it. Um, so since the 70s. Um, so, you know, they've been, you know, worrying about, you know, whether we're going to flood their markets and take all their consumers and things like that. So we presented in front of the House of Lords and um, we were really positive about our meeting with them. So it was great when we got home to hear that in actual fact, it's now moved without amendment through that committee. Um, third reading speech, there's some waiting times that the bill has to serve in its various little processes through this last part of, part of the process, but it should all be hopefully done and dusted by the end of March. Oh, wow. It's going to move pretty quickly. It's going to move pretty quickly. So if not the end of March, beginning of April, but pretty much on on time. Um, Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister there, did um, talk to our Prime Minister, um, Anthony Albanese, and they had sort of agreed, hopefully, um, first quarter of this year. And it looks like that will pretty much be the time frame. Yeah, great. In, in terms of we know that it's going to open up, obviously, a new market um, with greater access for Aussie goods. In terms of a free trade agreement, it means there is trade then coming back into Australia. So from an ag perspective, is there any, I guess, yeah, sectors which potentially could be disadvantaged by this? No, look, um, trade agreements are all about win-wins, to be honest. Um, and Australian farmers who are very competitive, we don't have subsidies. Um, a lot of those UK, EU, American farmers, you know, a lot of our peers do uh, and are subsidised. Um, for different things. We don't. Um, we depend on being innovative. We use technology and competitive. And so um, in terms of agricultural goods, no. I mean, obviously, a lot of our machinery um, does come in from the UK um, and um, and, uh, and cars and different things like that. 
um, and and processed goods as well. So, you know, we're opening up, uh, you know, somebody might like, I don't know whether you like, Ollie, a little tipple of Scotch whiskey, a nice little single malt. <laughs> but those sorts of things, um, you know, they'll be competing with some of our great Aussie Scotch whiskies, as well, Aussie whiskies that we have now um, that they're making in places like Tasmania. So, you know, it's just about giving consumers choice. Um, and um, at the end of the day, when you talk to some people like our sugar producers, for example, so we met with um, Tate and Lyle, who I've met with every time I've been to the UK since 2018, who are, who are importers and, and manufacturers of sugar products in the UK, very old ones. They've got a, a great brand with a line with flies, sort of lying down with flies buzzing around his head. Um, anyway, they are dependent on sugar beet producers whilst they've been in the EU. Um, and they really want to import sugar again from Australia because they know the quality of the sugar that we produce, that they know the sustainability characteristics of our cane that we have through the Smart Cane program. They know that we can deliver exactly the quality and the type of sugar that they want um, that then can be turned into to brown sugar and um, demerara and all those different products, unlike sugar beet sugar. Um, and so they're really, they've almost already booked their boat um, to, to be um, sailing a load of sugar up the Thames to their um, mill there right at the at, on the edge of London, um, you know, at the end of the year, which is incredibly exciting to see those things happening and that joining again of the UK and, and Australia who've been such close partners for so long but haven't really been able to have this sort of open access for trade, which will result over time from this FTA, um, you know, no tariffs, no, um, no quotas over time from those products. Um, and that's incredibly exciting. So uh, it'll be good to see. And I know that the cane growers have been working for quite a number of years in terms of the provenance and traceability of their product. So that is exciting. A couple of things you've mentioned there is around sustainability and I guess why, from the UK perspective, they're looking to Aussie Ag. But um, at that Global Food Forum, there's been talk that Australia's sustainability and animal welfare standards that we perceive we've got maybe isn't reflected on the global stage. So what was actually discussed and observed there? Yeah, so it's certainly they are the things that have been raised. Um, you know, our and we see in the UK FTA, and I think we'll probably also come through in the EU FTA, chapters on sustainability and chapters on animal welfare. And there's been a lot of noise over here around things like the carbon border adjustment mechanism, for example, that the EU was seeking to impose, um, and also things around, um, you know, the way we use chemicals, the way we manage our landscapes. There's been talks about deforestation clauses, all sorts of different things um, that are emerging in these two free trade agreements that are different to any others and haven't emerged in any other. And I think that's a way um, where it's highlighting some of the concerns that those communities have in particular about the way we do um, business in Australia and the way we manage our landscapes in Australia. And some of that all is... Um, possibly justified in some ways um, in terms of us, you know, making sure that that they that we can tell our story about our different production environments. Some of it is, is that we do have a way to go in some ways um, with some commodities in the way um, that we're progressing those things. But a lot of it is, is that we're just not telling our story about the different production environments we have um, and the sustainability credentials that we have in Australia, you know, through the Australian Agricultural Sustainability Framework, which is um, the framework that AFF is putting together to draw all those sustainability plans from the different commodities, whether it's cane or cotton or, or grassland beef, whatever it is, draw it all into one 
um, big um, Australian agricultural framework that will actually push the whole of industry's sustainability credit forward. Um, then until we have those sorts of things, it's really hard to tell our story effectively, to tell the story of how we manage our landscapes and have in many, for many, many years, um, and, and to tell the stories of, of the great independent, you know, um, regulatory environments that we have here that determine how we farm and, and how we want to look after our animals and how we want to look after our, our landscapes. In terms of, obviously, the EU and the UK are important, but are they the most important? So in terms of their views of where we're at sustainability-wise and animal welfare-wise? They can't determine what we do in Australia because it's different. Um, yeah. So it has to be outcomes-based. And and their views in terms of the outcomes that they want for their animals and their environment and stuff, that's really important. But it has to be outcomes-based. We can't have the EU saying that we must adopt all the same standards in animal welfare that they have. Because to be honest, that just doesn't make sense. They have standards around the fact that most of their animals are shedded for most of the year. So they have standards about how many hours of sunlight each animal must be um, exposed to, for example. We don't need those standards. We actually yeah. need standards around shade. <laughs> so, and this, you know, likewise, you know, um, debates around mulesing in Australia, for example, it's, 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 it's when you think about the, the fly strike that we have here in Australia, and we had a really interesting discussion with the House of Lords Committee about things like that um, and about those practices and about why they are there and about what Australian industry is doing um, in relation to the welfare of sheep and to looking at those practices and and um, and doing those things. So, uh, and again, chemicals, you know, they go on a lot about that we've got, you know, more chemicals or different chemicals registered down here than they have. But in actual fact, they've actually got quite a lot of chemicals registered in the in the UK that we don't have because they have different woolly weeds and different invasive species. So it's just about balancing. It's about telling our story. It's about having the frameworks that can stand up to international scrutiny with the data actually underpinning those frameworks. So there's absolutely no doubt that when we say we're clean and green and sustainable, that, that we have um, frameworks and data to prove it. With the the sustainability piece, um, you guys are working really closely. Well, I guess the agriculture industry is really working closely to address, I guess, Australia's image on the global stage. But how much of it is, I guess, Australian agriculture's image versus actually Australia's image on a global stage? Yeah, that's the interesting thing. So Australian agriculture has been, I think, bolshier than any other agricultural industry in the world around um, heading towards a lower carbon economy, around our targets, around being sustainable, around um, how we manage our landscapes. When we look at even historically, Ollie, things like no-till cultivation, you know, we have led the world in the adoption of some of those real sustainability practices. Um, yet we've really been tarnished, I have to say, in the past probably decade at least, um, by the political nature of the whole discussion around climate change in Australia about the government's um, front piece around, you know, batting back those sorts of and, and staying back from making ambitious targets. There is a view that we're beholden to the fossil fuel industry and that has sort of coloured um, a lot of Australian agriculture's response, albeit that over COVID, during COVID, we certainly spoke to, you know, online to numerous colleagues about it um, and numerous, you know, the negotiations for the FTAs and things kept going and we kept putting forward Australian agriculture's perspective, but definitely coloured by um, the global view of Australia and um, and so important then that we keep, you know, working on things that will give the data. It's it's You can't just keep saying we're clean and green and that's why you like our products. 
you have to have the data to prove it. Fantastic. Well, Fiona, thank you so much. I love getting the access to you to understand what's happening in your world and I guess that conversation across the broader Aussie ag industry, but also international government space. So thank you so much for the chat. Pleasure, Ollie. Always a pleasure. Alrighty, another episode done. Thank you to this week's In The Know expert for letting us pick their brains and answering all of our questions. And thanks to you for listening and coming along on this learning journey with us. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to follow In The Know On The Go podcast on your favourite streaming platform so you can stay in the know on the go. Catch you next time.